The preacher looked out over his jungle compound. A grin slowly appeared beneath the sunglasses he rarely removed. It was, after all, his vision that had created this second Eden. He had saved his flock from the dangers of their home country. At least, that was what he told them. That was what he liked best. They believed what he told them. He had convinced them all that things would be perfect the moment they arrived. Even though things had not happened the way the preacher wanted, he would not let fear stop his ultimate plan. He would make his point loud and clear to all who witnessed it. As this plan flashed through his mind again, the grin became a smile. Please, for God's sake, let's get on with it. We've lived, we've lived as no other people have lived and loved. We've had as much of this world as you're going to get. Let's just be done with it. Let's be done with the agony of it. Virtuous Men, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. In this mini-pod season, we will explore the seven deadly sins, a man who personified each one, and the opposing virtue needed to defeat it. Welcome to Episode 1, The Pride of Jim Jones. A sin is an immoral behavior that one performs in direct opposition to virtue. For every good action, there is an evil action. For every virtue, there is a vice. Both forces work against one another in the hearts and minds of mankind for the benefit or destruction of humanity. Stories of history and fiction have clearly revealed the truth that while every man is capable of great virtue, so too is he capable of unspeakable evil. This duality was famously summarized in what is known as the Seven Deadly Sins, first listed by Pope Gregory I in the 6th century and then further developed by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. The list highlights the key sins in human nature that ultimately lead to destruction and death. This episode's sin is pride. Pride is the inner conviction that one's beliefs, actions, and achievements are above all others. A prideful man believes that he has all the answers, that he should not be questioned, and that those who oppose him are wrong. While a man can be proud of what he has done or achieved with a humble heart, a prideful man sees his achievements and knowledge as the only way to success and fulfillment. In the eyes of a prideful man, there is only his way and no other. One of the 20th century's most notorious examples of pride was the infamous cult leader Jim Jones. His lifelong descent into pride came to an unforgettable conclusion that still continues to confound and horrify us to this day. Due to graphic and disturbing content, this episode may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. James Warren Jones was born on May 13, 1931, in the small rural town of Crete, Indiana. The son of a World War I veteran and a neglectful mother, the family faced numerous trials in his younger years. They were often in poverty and had to rely on extended family for financial support. Jones spent much of his childhood alone, often wandering the streets. The neighbors felt sympathy for the young Jones and often fed him, sheltered him, and gave him gifts. Jones's first exposure to religion was at the local Nazarene church, and Jones soon became enthralled with preaching. 
He displayed an impressive ability to recite scripture and sometimes practiced preaching in private. This religiosity often came out in disturbing ways. By age nine, Jones said he possessed supernatural power and even claimed that he could fly. He also developed a fascination with death and would often go to funeral homes and hold services for dead animals. These odd behaviors and interests alienated him from his peers, and Jones later claimed that in those days, no one gave him love or understanding. As Jones grew, his devotion to religion was matched by his devotion to extreme political ideology. He voraciously read the works of Chairman Mao, Stalin, Lenin, and Hitler, becoming more and more persuaded by the political models of socialism and communism. He was a good student and displayed great organizational and administrative skills. He also showed his hatred of racism in this period, views which ran against the current beliefs of the day. While attending college, he met and married his wife Marceline in 1949 and a few years later began working toward becoming a Methodist preacher. After accepting a position as an assistant pastor, he quickly excelled in the role and was soon guest preaching all around Indiana. He eventually parted ways with the Methodist denomination over differences regarding racial integration, and in 1954, formed his own church in Indianapolis. After going through various names, the church was named People's Temple. With his church established, Jones needed publicity and funding. He began to align himself with preacher William Branham of the Independent Assemblies of God denomination. In addition to guest preaching alongside Branham, he learned a number of tactics not just for preaching, but how to draw others into the flock. Jones began incorporating faith healings into his services, which he always insisted be racially integrated. This, combined with the support and promotion of Branham, led to the rapid growth of People's Temple in Indianapolis. The temple even opened a soup kitchen, which provided thousands of free meals and other resources. The profile of the temple was further boosted by Jones being appointed to the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission and by the publicity surrounding Jones's efforts to integrate local businesses. Some even suggested later that Jones was single-handedly responsible for desegregating Indianapolis. After suffering a collapse from exhaustion and overworking, Jones was mistakenly taken to a black hospital, and upon realizing the error, Jones refused to be moved. Upon his recovery, he gave aid to his fellow black ward mates, emptying bedpans and changing sheets. This led to increased pressure to desegregate the hospital, which finally happened. He and Marceline even adopted children of multiple ethnicities, which he referred to as his rainbow family. All of this unceasing activity demonstrated two of Jones's greatest strengths, his incredible capacity for hard work and his willingness to lead by example. While things were looking bright, there were signs of decay from within the church. Jones cleverly wove messages of socialism into quotations from the Bible in an effort to disguise his real socio-political agenda. While some outsiders saw through the message, there was no denying that Jones was a charismatic and persuasive preacher. That's how you can tell the love you have because you're always referring to someone else when they're going through suffering as if it were you or someone else going in an experience as if it were you because I no longer live. I'm crucified with the revolution. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but in a thousand bodies, in yea, ten thousand bodies, I live. Don't you understand the mystery of that? 
No longer I, but Christ the revolution. Christ in the Hebrew means revolution. The anointing, the electrifying revolution. No longer I that lives. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ. The demands made on the congregants also increased dramatically, with a special emphasis on total commitment to the church in exchange for every need being met. This led to some members selling off all of their assets, including their homes. Jones also claimed that he had received a vision of an impending nuclear attack on the American heartland, which led to attempts to relocate People's Temple. Jones traveled to various countries in South America, which supposedly had cities that were deemed the safest in case of nuclear attack. After failing to establish the church in these cities, Jones returned to Indiana in 1963. He would eventually move People's Temple to Redwood City, California, where he slowly began adding congregants over the years. He even used a fleet of buses to shuttle the temple to local elections and even across the United States for fundraising and public outreach missions. During this time, his sermons began growing less subtle in their attacks on the Bible and promotion of socialism. Jones claimed that he had been personally sent by God to reveal the true socialist message of the Bible, even going so far as to proclaim, I am come as God's socialist. He was nonetheless careful to keep his true views hidden from the outside world out of fear that his church would lose its tax exemption status. It was during the move to California that Jones's descent slowly began. He started taking illicit drugs and frequently warned his followers of an impending doom. Throughout his career, Jones always wore sunglasses and was rarely seen without them. He said that he wore them to shield his followers from the holy light shining from his eyes, when, in reality, he was likely trying to conceal evidence of his drug use. He also began a series of extramarital affairs with members of his congregation. While some of these sexual exchanges were forced, some claimed that it was a privilege to sleep at the revered leader. Jones even had sexual relations with some of his male followers, which Jones attempted to justify by saying it was all for the cause. The disciplines for those who fell out of line became more severe, with some members even being physically abused and publicly humiliated. Despite this, the church numbers continued to grow. With the beginning of the 70s, hundreds of new members joined People's Temple. By this time, the church had extended its reach to San Francisco, where Jones made numerous political connections and helped sway local elections. He even met with First Lady Rosalind Carter on a few occasions and received favorable press. But the good publicity would soon begin to wane. In 1971, journalists covered one of his divine healings during a sermon and discovered that it was nothing but a series of hoaxes. During the supposed healings, what looked like tumors or dead tissue supposedly falling from the people being healed were actually pieces of animal meat. Jones had, in reality, been performing healings since his early days as a preacher to boost publicity, and the higher-ups in the church were all well aware that the miracles were fake. Jones had also faked his divine knowledge of his congregants' lives by having recruits gather personal information about them beforehand, which was then relayed to Jones before a sermon. These allegations only added to Jones's mounting paranoia and fueled his drive to permanently relocate People's Temple out of the United States. In 1973, it was decided that the church would move to the small South American country of Guyana. It was primarily chosen for its socialist politics and isolation, 
which Jones believed would be instrumental in turning the compound into a socialist paradise. The place would be called Jonestown. After leasing 3,000 acres in 1973, 50 temple members arrived to begin construction. The process of building a massive commune in the middle of the jungle proved to be extremely difficult. The subsequent migration from California to Jonestown made the place significantly overcrowded, but by 1977, the community was firmly established. Despite the difficulties of maintaining such a large group of people, there was a sense of shared purpose felt by all who resided in Jonestown. At its peak, it contained 1,000 members of multiple ethnicities and ages. In the first few months, things looked like they were truly headed toward the utopia Jones had been proclaiming. When Jones arrived, however, things took a downward turn. He forbade anyone to leave the community and had armed guards surrounding the entire perimeter. The workdays were long, the food supply was minimal, and Jones constantly ranted about the glories of socialism over the tower speakers day and night. Jones's physical health had also deteriorated. Overweight, drug-addicted, and increasingly paranoid, his control over his commune was nonetheless absolute. He maintained that the United States intelligence agencies were constantly conspiring to destroy them, and would often have the temple rehearse mass suicide. This was done not just to demonstrate loyalty, but to enact a massive act of defiance whenever the supposed enemy finally arrived. Word of the less-than-utopian occurrences in Jonestown eventually made their way back to relatives of various temple members in the United States. The relatives eventually persuaded Congress to officially investigate Jonestown. California Congressman Leo Ryan agreed to go on a fact-finding mission, and, with a small group of journalists and a few of the concerned relatives, arrived in Guyana in 1978. Jones, having known about the visit for weeks, had been rehearsing every move in preparation of Ryan's arrival. He told everyone exactly what to say and how to act in order to portray Jonestown as the promised utopia. The first day of the visit went well, with Ryan appearing very pleased with what he saw. Jones even claimed that the people were free to come and go as they pleased. The next day, over 40 temple members came forth asking to leave with the congressman. As they made their way to the airstrip, Jones ordered a group of armed guards to pursue the fleeing defectors. As the group began boarding the aircraft, the guards arrived and opened fire. Ryan and four others were killed, and the survivors fled into the jungle, eventually making their way to the capital city of Georgetown. After word of the shooting reached Jones, he proclaimed to the commune that a U.S. attack was imminent and that there was nothing more they could do to stop it. Some temple members told Jones they should attempt an exodus to the Soviet Union, but Jones said it was impossible. It was time for the temple to commit its revolutionary act that it had rehearsed many times. Large drums of grape flavor aid were prepared and filled with cyanide, and Jones ordered everyone onto the pavilion. Survivor and high-ranking temple member Tim Carter claimed in an interview decades later, quote, The sky turned black and, on my life, I am telling the truth. It literally felt like evil itself flew into Jonestown, end quote. He also claimed that as Jones was loudly yelling and lighting people up, he possessed, quote, shark eyes devoid of life, end quote. Living, you're looking at death, it only looks, living is much, much more difficult. 
raising up every morning and not knowing what's going to be the nice bringing. It's much more difficult. It's much more difficult. Lay down your life with dignity. Don't lay down with tears and agony. There's nothing to death. It's like Mac that is just stepping over in another plane. Don't, don't be this way. Stop this hysterics. This is not the way for people who are socialist to communists to die. No way for us to die. We must die with some dignity. I tell you, I don't care how many screams you hear, I don't care how many anguished cries. Death is a million times preferable to ten more days of this life. If you knew what was ahead of you, if you knew what was ahead of you, you'd be glad to be stepping over tonight. People began having the poison injected one at a time, and when the temple members saw the poison taking effect, they became reluctant. Many members were forced to take the poison, including the elderly, children, and infants. Carter himself witnessed his 15-month-old son having cyanide squirted into his mouth and his wife committing suicide from despair. Other parents suffered the sight of their children convulsing violently, vomiting blood and saliva, and eventually falling into comas and dying. It was a fate that they would soon be enduring themselves. Surviving audio tape of that day recorded screams of agony and horror as people succumbed to a terrible death. Sounds that the few survivors would never forget. When the terror finally ended, over 900 people lay dead. Jones himself died by a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head, having not taken the poison that he so willingly inflicted on his followers. The mass death at Jonestown quickly made headlines around the world. Media coverage in the United States lasted for months, and it was estimated that a staggering 98% of Americans had heard about the incident. The People's Temple quickly dissolved, and numerous Christian leaders claimed Jones had perverted the actual teachings of Christianity. The expression, drinking the Kool-Aid, entered the pop culture lexicon as a phrase used to describe extreme loyalty to a cause or belief though it was actually flavor aid used for the poisonings. It was initially believed that the dead had all willingly chosen to take their own lives, but reports from witness testimonies and following investigations revealed that it was less a mass suicide and more of a massacre. Prior to 9-11, it was the worst loss of American lives in a deliberate act. Jim Jones and People's Temple would forever change the way a cult is perceived, and Jones, along with Charles Manson, remains the archetypal cult leader in the minds of many. To this day, Jim Jones remains an infamous and complicated figure in the popular imagination. He did profound good for other people, yet committed unspeakably evil acts. He was genuinely moved by human suffering, yet inflicted horrible suffering himself. He was hardworking and ambitious, yet his goals were ultimately self-serving. While it is impossible to know if he truly believed what he preached or whether his entire aim was to control and manipulate the minds and lives of others in service to his own agenda, it is easily determined that Jones was the personification of pride. The virtue that heals pride is humility. A humble man is well aware of what his talents are, yet never seeks attention, special treatment, or adulation because of them. Humility has no regard for selfishness. A humble man acknowledges the strengths of others as a means to complement his own in order to achieve great things for the benefit of others. 
One can only imagine what a man with talents like Jim Jones could have achieved had he forsaken pride and chosen humility. Indeed, many speculate today what Jones's legacy could have been if this had been the case. But like all cult leaders, Jones served only one god, the god of the self. A master manipulator and narcissistic to the core, Jones was more than willing to do whatever was necessary to achieve his goals, even if it meant sacrificing the lives of almost 1,000 people. I want you to be like I am. I want you to become what I am. I want you to enjoy the fearlessness that I have, the courage that I have, the compassion that I have, the love that I have, the all-encompassing mercy that I am. I want you to be what I am and something greater. This episode of Virtuous Men was written and recorded by Scott Einig and edited by Jamie Adams. Tune in next Monday for the next episode of our Seven Deadly Sins series, The Sin of Greed. <laughs>